Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and a welcome to the Banker Midweek. Today, your editor is, of course, Liz Lumley. And joining me today is 10X founder and CEO, Anthony Jenkins. Um, he is, uh, 10X is on a mission to transform banking. Uh, Anthony also served as the chief executive officer at Barclays PLC and was awarded a CBE for services to business in 2021. Hello, Anthony. How are you? I am very well. It's a pleasure to be with you on this podcast, Liz. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're very well known in the industry, so I think you uh, you need no no further introduction, but we'll we'll get in and talking about the newsy bits of the day. So as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on The Banker site and newsy bits that will influence our future stories. So we're actually going to start off with a piece of research that came um, from your team at 10X. Um, which was put together and looks at talent attrition and retention and how it relates to digital transformation in financial services. So this study revealed that 94% of product managers admitted that they would leave their current position to work for a competing bank with better technology, and 92% claimed that they would leave for a bank with more ambitious transformation goals. Did any of those findings surprise you? Well, I was quite surprised by the size of feeling around this topic. But what it suggests to me is that you know, people at the coalface in the industry working day in and day out to launch products and improve products for their customers are really quite frustrated at the tools they have to work with. And I know this myself. You know, I built a lot of product in my career um, and it always took far too long, cost far too much money. Um, and the processes were quite inflexible. So while the, the sheer size of this is is notable, I think the trend is not. Uh, and I think there is a lot of frustration among people. And when you contrast that with some of the other findings in the survey, where mm. you know, certainly senior managers believe that their organizations are making good progress on digital, there's quite a uh, dichotomy between the views of the sort of the senior people in uh, banks and the people who are actually doing the work. Interesting. Yeah, no, it'd be interesting to find more about that kind of disconnect because it's, it's, you know, I've, I've kind of seen there's banks have made a lot of progress um, in the in the past few years, but, you know, that people have different debates around that about whether whether it's enough, like how, how big was that disconnect between how managers and senior leaders felt their digital transformation and ambitions were going and, and the people on the on the coal face, for example? Well, I think it varied. But, you know, I think at least 30 to 40 percent of banks thought that they were really leading, you know, from a digital point of view. It wasn't a competitive disadvantage to them. Um, and then the rest of the population was sort of either neutral or a smaller proportion were concerned. Mm. So it's quite a big uh, delta between the people at, at the coalface, as I said, and the, the people in senior positions. And you're exactly right, of course, the industry has made significant progress in what I would describe as innovation, you know, marginally marginal improvements in the delivery to customers. But this hasn't yet been transformational. Mm. Uh, of course, banks have functional mobile apps, and that's led to people being able to do their banking at any time of the day or night, and that's been a positive for customers. But it really hasn't changed the fundamentals of how the industry operates. 
And at the same time, delivering beautiful digital experiences in real time through a set of technologies that was architected in many cases, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, sometimes even in the 60s and 70s, is really difficult because you're trying to connect modern technology to old legacy tech. Uh, and that while the banks have done that successfully to date, it is getting harder and harder to do. Mm. I've often, I mean, I, I've, I've written a lot about kind of what what drives banks to embark on digital transformation, and, and it's 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 not just about you know an embrace of uh, of emerging technologies and innovation. But you had previous research done at 10x, which found that 63% of bank managers believe they had lost out on winning new customers due to slow digital transformation, and admitted to losing 20% of their customers due to poor customer service. That could uh, be impacted by the lack of innovation and an embrace of agile new technologies. Now it's kind of interesting because one of the one of the things we've we've kind of seen is is kind of the stickiness of incumbent bank customers. The the emerging technologies and new en fintech entrants in the space haven't really cut into that customer base in a in a substantial way. Do do you see that changing now? Are we seeing more more of that disruption we were promised ten years ago? I would go back even further. If you go back 20 years to the start of the, the, the internet revolution, uh, when banks started to, to launch websites and that type of thing, again, there was always this sense that what we were really doing was adding a channel. Mm -hmm. If you go back even further in time, there was the branch, then there was the call center, then there was the internet, then there was mobile. And all of these things were benefits to customers because it gave them more flexibility in how they did business. Now, of course, if you look at the raw customer numbers and you look at the data on switching, uh, you could conclude that not very much has changed. But actually, particularly in the UK marketplace where bank accounts are free, what you what tends to happen is that you just get dormancy. So mm. a customer doesn't close their account at you know bank X. Um, they just open an account at Bank Y and progressively move their business over to Bank Y over time. And they may even use you know, multiple bank accounts. So I think it's, um, it's, it's not really instructive as to the, uh, the real trends that are going on in this marketplace. And of course, transaction accounts are just one, uh, one product that mm. banks offer. If you look across the entire range of asset and liability products, we do see customers shopping around. Uh, of course, mortgages uh, are the best example. 85% of mortgages in the UK are broked, so people will go to a broker to look for the best deal. Mm -hmm. But you can see people looking at Best Buy charts, comparison websites, and so on for um, savings and lending products. And technology has made it easier to switch because now you can move money or receive money electronically and do that in a few hours as opposed to, you know, 20 years ago where it was all paper checks. Oh, yes. No, I remember those times well. <laughs> Happy <laughs> days. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that slow change. But I wanted to go back to the, 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 the most recent um, uh, survey talking about um, uh, people leaving the bank. And it was interesting when um, when the study said 90, 92% of product managers would leave the bank for another bank who's more ambitious. And I, I kind of, you know, could feel the, the, the social media chatter in the back of my head uh, with the more cynical uh, cynical uh, talkers in the industry saying, wh who, where are these uh, ambitious technology banks uh, that 
are doing a lot of uh, wonderful stuff. Is there more of a of a threat that uh, many of these people will actually leave financial services completely and go to a, a different industry that's that's more embraces more of these technologies and has more innovation and more fun shiny stuff? Well, I think you're right. I think it's hard to find a standout example of a incumbent bank that's actually truly transformed themselves into a you know, digital first organization. And so what I think you're seeing in the survey is people expressing their frustration with where they are. Uh, but I'm sure that there are people who leave banking to go and work in other industries. Uh, and of course, what's fascinating, we tend to always think about fintechs, but it's interesting to me how much uh, incursion into financial services the big tech companies have made. Mm, mm. They're, they're smart enough not necessarily to want to become a regulated entity with all that that entails from a capital point of view, um, but they are certainly inserting themselves into the payment flow, for example, and the best example of that is, is Apple Pay and Google Pay. Uh, so they're already getting in there, and of course, uh, those organizations can hire talent from banking. Yes, yeah, we have to we have to do more to try and keep some of our our talented people in this industry because it's really important. Um, but I wanted to move on a bit to some newsy bits uh, that are on the banker site right at the moment. And we have a story from our brand new banker reporter, Alaya Shibley, uh, today uh, looking at HSBC's $35 million investment in a joint venture with Nordic FinTech Trade Shift. And this joint venture is going to um, work with the bank to help SMEs get better access to financing. Now, it's kind of interesting, outside of this, you know, sp specific news story about the HSBC joint venture, one of our favorite topics here in the Banker Midweek is talking about uh, the challenges and realities of bank fintech tech company partnerships. It's one of it's one of the big topics of the age. And so we have this this recent, uh, you know, investment, large investment and in joint venture from a uh, very large bank, HSBC. Just, you know, in your experience, where the, the sort of maybe not big tech, but bank fintech relationship has come from a lot of uh, criticism in the years. And I've seen I've seen a lot of failures in this space. And I've seen some successes as well. How do you see these types of relationships kind of evolving in the future? Yeah, a lot of people look back 20, 25 years to industries that have been massively disrupted by technology. Think about retailing, the media, mm. travel. Uh, and really, if you look at some of the dominant players in those industry categories 25 years ago, they don't exist anymore. Uh, it's the the classic example of, you know, BlackBerry versus Apple, Blockbuster versus Netflix, um, Kodak versus digital photography, and so on. And you might ask yourself, well, why hasn't that happened in financial services? And the answer is because financial services is a very complex, huge industry with lots of legislation and regulation around it and very heavy capital requirements. Moreover, um, there are players in this space who have been around for hundreds of years, have big customer bases, brands, and deep pockets. And so what we see in financial services is a much more gradual pace of change than we've seen in other industries. And so it's not illogical at all to see these partnerships come about because for a 
big bank, they need capability. Now, of course, with any with enough time and money, you can do anything. But if a big bank can go and identify capability that's been built by people who have just focused on doing that, as we have in 10x, solving the problem of you know the core operating systems of the bank, that's all we've done for seven years. Um, and we can attract talent to do that. And we can think in ways and operate in ways which are hard for an established institution to do it. So on paper, there's a, there's a sort of good uh, strategic rationale for bringing together capability that's been built outside the bank with the bank's own advantages, which are brand, customer base, financial mm-hmm. resources, regulation, and so on. So it's not... It's not illogical at all. I think it's it's quite compelling, actually. The question is, how do you make it work? Mm. Uh, and making it work really means a recognition by both parties of the issues of the other. So if you're a if you're a fintech, you're used to moving very fast uh, with relatively little bureaucracy. Um, when you come to interact with a big bank, um, it seems like everything is glacially slow. When you're a big bank. You have to operate inside a whole bunch of um, requirements, whether it's requirements to to operate uh, your technology in a certain way, to meet AML and KYC requirements and so on. Uh, And these things are often not well understood by fintechs. So in order for these partnerships to be successful, I guess, like any relationship, each party has to understand the constraints of the other side and then find a way, find a middle path forward so that both benefit. And I think we're going to see more of these partnerships going forward. Um, you know, my, my whole business is working with banks. Uh, so I do this day in and day out. Of course, I came from the industry. So I was much less surprised by some of the constraints on the bank side than perhaps people who hadn't started their careers in the industry. You you kind of understand the language of the language that banks speak and can translate <laughs> for the tech companies. Better. Exactly. And and also, you know, the, the, the it's also the constraints they operate under. It's, it's not that the banks are trying to be difficult. It's just they're managing a very complex mm. set of issues. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the tech topic of the day, which is AI. We've had a lot of talk over the years about conversational uh, artificial intelligence and chatbots and things. But now, of course, everyone's talking about a generative AI. So we've got a story on the site today uh, looking at uh, AI, that uh, artificial intelligence success in financial services. And it points to a Puerto Rican bank and uh, the U.S. Zenis Bank which is using uh, generative AI uh, face and voice gener- uh, recognition biometrics to authenticate client transactions. So it's kind of like, you know, that there's a hype machine right at, right at the moment is at the top of that hype cycle talking about generative AI and how it's going to, you know, impact many, many industries, not just financial services. But, you know, is there... How how do you like putting away the we're all going to be working for robots someday and they'll take all our jobs type of thing? Where do where do you see the real impact that this is going to have on financial services? And do, is there anything that gives you pause when when looking at these types of developments? Yes, of course. And I I would point out you know AI is not a new thing. Mm. It's been around <laughs> for at least forty years. Um, and banks have been using versions of machine learning and AI for many years. When I was at City uh, in the late 90s, we were using neural network models for credit scoring. So, yeah, there's, but these things are all a question of degree. And I totally uh, 
think that we are in the sort of peak hype cycle for for AI because it's become part of the the mass consciousness um, with everybody downloading chat GPT and so on. So what does it really mean for banks and what are the pothole flows or the sort of the pitfalls that could could befall a bank? I think firstly, it is a powerful set of capabilities for automating routine tasks um, like answering you know, basic customer service queries. Um, you can use it to write code. You can use it to write test scripts. Um, you can use it to write product documentation. So it's a powerful automation tool. But like any tool, it has to be used in the right way. I often think about it as a, as a pocket calculator for those of us who are old enough to remember the physical device that was a pocket calculator or for the younger generation, the calculator that sits on your phone. Um, if you have a calculator and you put in you know, two times 10, you have to know enough about arithmetic to know the answer is not going to be 500. And it's the same with, with these tools. You have to be able to quality control the output with judgment. The downsides to this, of course, are many. Um, one is just you know, the sample size uh, and the quality of the sample of the data that's used to train the algorithms. Everybody is well aware that that can contain bias and that has to be very um, tightly controlled. There are lots of issues about which tools you use and how you use them, um, whether the data you put into the tool then becomes the property of the tool, um, and whether the output of the tool becomes the property of the tool. And that can create a lot of challenges around things like uh, intellectual property rights uh, and the legal ownership of intellectual property. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think any any bank or indeed organization I mean, at 10x we've we've been looking at using these tools for pr primarily for productivity reasons has to approach the topic with with a fair degree of caution mm. uh, as we learn our way into to the best use cases for this and the best way to control those use cases yeah i know yeah it's it's something that we're we're talking about here inside the ft there's a lot of discussion about uh, the emerging tools and how how they can be used and again as you mentioned you know how they cannot uh, abuse internet, uh, intellectual property rights and, um, and uh, content permission and all that all that good stuff that happens in a newspaper. Um, so I wanted to leave the banker a bit, and there are a lot of stories uh, that we end up talking about frequently on the Banker Midweek, and I'm just very, very happy that this one has absolutely nothing to do with Nigel Farage. But we're going to talk about uh, interest rates. So this came today, this was on the FT today, that um, Italy has announced a 40% windfall tax on its banks. And this has sent shares in some of uh, Italy's largest banks, like Intesa, San Paolo, and Unicredit, um, uh, falling down today. And so this is from uh, the Maloney government. She has been uh, the prime minister of Italy. She's been critical of banks for failing to raise deposit rates to help small savers. Um, and she said that this tax would uh, be used for funds that would be used to help families and businesses hit by rising interest rates, especially those in the process of purchasing their first homes. Now, it's interesting. I was on the BBC uh, earlier this year talking um, about a very similar topic about 
why we have very high interest rates now that are continuing to rise. Um, and it doesn't seem like a lot of banks are passing those interest rates on to savers and on to um, consumers. And uh, so there's getting a lot of pushback. And I'm just wondering, I'm, I mean, maybe not necessarily an extreme example like uh, Italy's 40% windfall tax, but there's been a lot of talk about maybe the regulator getting involved and, and talking to banks about um, pu you know, raising interest rates on, on savings accounts and, and pushing some of these uh, profits that they're making onto the consumers. Do you think we're going to see governments and regulators get more involved as it seems like we are, we are now in an almost permanent high interest rate world? Well, it's interesting to me, you know, because having worked as long as I have, that interest rates at five and a quarter seem to be a period of high interest rates. I mean, they, they really aren't historically. I think uh, I remember when you know mortgage rates in the 90s were 15%, 16%. Of course, property prices were a lot cheaper in those days as well. But, uh, yeah, and in this country, the regulator, of course, and the government have been quite vocal on this topic and have been talking to the banks about uh, the difference between what gets paid to savers and what gets charged to borrowers, particularly for mortgages. But if we if we take a step out of this and just look at um, many different industries, you know, whether it's the energy industry, the grocery industry, financial services, there's been this you know, extreme set of economic conditions in the last 12 to 18 months uh, and for any organization you have to recognize that you're balancing a variety of different interests you of course have to serve your shareholders you have to pay your colleagues fairly you have to treat your customers right you know you have to recognize the role that you play in society and it's a constant uh, optimization of those things and i do think that when uh, so many people are struggling financially. It's important for organizations in all industries to be able to be clear about what their policies are and why they're doing it. Now, not everybody's going to like it, um, for sure. But at least you have to be able to articulate why you're doing what you're doing. You know, net interest margin has increased for most banks, um, but they would argue it's only gone back to where it was historically. As you know, um, there's concern uh, that at some point credit losses will increase and banks need to provide for those things. So you know, this is a balancing act, but I do think the industry would be well served by continuing to be clear and transparent about mm. what their policies are on pricing. Yeah. Again, not everybody's going to like it, but you have to at least describe what you're what you're standing up for. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that sort of that transparency is is a is a key. People need to. I mean, I you know, as a as a banking journalist, I understand completely what you're saying that this isn't the highest interest rate that we've ever experienced in the in the in the modern age. But you know, you know, personally, my mortgage is going up five hundred pounds um, the next January, which I'm not not looking forward to. So there's this, you know, it it is effect it is impacting consumers in a way that uh, is is often confusing. And I think it would it would do banks a service to be more open and transparent about how these things work. And what's so difficult about this, of course, is the pace at which rates have moved. Um, they've moved upwards very quickly after a period of relative stability. Now, of course, people forget that rates also came down, particularly in, in the COVID period. So yeah, there's there's 
it's a very difficult situation for a lot of people. Um, everything from from people who are you know really really suffering from the cost of living crisis up to people for whom it's difficult, and banks need to acknowledge that they are in the they are in the position of serving you know the citizens of this country and they, they need to be clear about what their policies are on that so in the interest of time i'm actually going to skip a discussion around uh the basel two basel three end game where sort of everyone is freaking out around the u.s uh, realizing they didn't really pay attention to basel two in the first place and it's now basel three and basel four but we're going to skip that this week uh, because i really would rather talk about another common topic on the banker midweek which are digital assets and stable coins especially since this week paypal has launched its own u.s dollar based stable coin which i see is now making making the rounds all on uh crypto twitter crypto x now well i don't want to get into that um but it's uh it's interesting because i wanted to hear your views on there's you know there's there's work on the digital pound which um i think they need to keep the term Britcoin alive. I know the Bank of England's not happy with that name, but I'm I love it, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over again until it catches on. Um, then, of course, there's work being going on the digital euro. Um, there's always privacy issues that come up around this, and then there seems to be uh, political turmoil in the U.S. when anyone mentions uh, central banks and digital currencies in the same sentence. But it's interesting bringing this in, bringing this in before I ask your views on on central bank digital currencies and stable coins. There was a an op-ed in the FT from Andy uh, Halladine that uh, made the rounds over the past week, where he called it the real scandal of central bank digital currencies, um, and he said physical cash is an interest-free loan to the government, a direct tax on citizens levied in proportion to their cash holdings at a tax rate given by the interest rate. Most people are blissfully unaware that they are being taxed in this way. And he was talking about uh, developments to develop a digital pound, which wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, would kind of try to treat it very similar to cash. And he's not, not a big fan of, of uh, treating uh, central bank digital currencies in this way. So what are your thoughts? Is everything, we just, everything going to be tokenized in the future? Where, 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 do, you, where do you see this going? Well, this would be the topic of multiple podcasts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we need to have a branch off one. <laughs> yeah, I, I always start from what problem are we trying to solve here? Because you can do a lot of cool things with technology, but actually, if it doesn't solve a real problem, why bother? Um, and if I think about you know, money, um, has at least two functions, but you know, one is a store of value uh, and the other is the ability to transfer that value from one person to another or one organization to another. And so those are the two fundamental things. We have money today. We have money that can be transferred electronically. So are those systems going to be significantly improved by creating stable coins or central bank digital currencies. That, in my mind, is the open question about all of these things, right? What is the superior outcome for, uh, for the citizens of the country? That's the fundamental question. Now, I could certainly convince myself that if you, if you went down the argument that Andy Haldane was making, 
I mean, he was, I think, advocating for the fact that these digital assets would be interest bearing. And of course, if somebody's uh, receiving interest, somebody's paying it. So the question is, who would effectively pay it? Uh, and if the answer is, well, the government would pay it, well, that really means the taxpayers paying it. So there's quite a complex chain. <laughs> it's a vicious puts, circle. <laughs> it takes in this debate. Um, mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say, whenever we consider digital assets, we should always ask what problem are we trying to solve? And it's far from clear to me what problems we're trying to solve in this space. The second thing is, what if that is the, if we can identify a real problem how do we solve it because we often think about these assets as being you know distributed uh, and the whole distributed ledger and of course that's how you know the crypto industry operates but actually i think what we've come to learn is that distributing things is quite inefficient from a technical point of view if you imagine um, the way our banking system has evolved, it's evolved because it's based on the physical world of 200 years ago, where we couldn't move anything digitally, where you know, checks had to be exchanged in coffee houses in the city of London. And if I wanted to move money to you, I had to give you a physical piece of paper, which you then had to take to your bank, and that had to be then processed physically back to my bank to, to change to move the value around. And what we've done is we've essentially replicated that system using digital, using electrical technology, digital technology. My argument would be, if you really wanted to have a frictionless way of making payments, you wouldn't decentralize, you would actually centralize, because if everybody had an account on one ledger, then it would simply be moving from A to B across the ledger itself. Uh, and that would actually be a much more uh, a technically efficient way of doing this. It also comes back to other topics which are really important in this space, like digital identity, because if we were able to create digital identity, then we would be able to make the system again much more efficient. I don't know if you tried to open a bank account recently or, or even something like a mobile phone account, but you know you find yourself rummaging around in your um, desk drawer for a utility bill, um, which you probably don't have like most people. Um, so when you've found one which is less than three months old and you know, scanned your passport and taken it sent off to the bank, you know, that whole process is, is puts a lot of friction into the system. And so you could take a lot of that out with digital identity. And that's where I think tokenization becomes important because once you can start to tokenize identity, um, then you can streamline a lot of these processes and you can add things like educational qualifications. There's a whole industry verifying people's educational qualifications when they apply for a new job. You know, that could be eliminated overnight if you could tokenize people's educational qualifications. So for me, I, it comes back to what problem are you trying to solve and then what's the right technology to solve it? And in this very, very huge arena that you've um, asked me to comment on, neither of those questions are clear to me, frankly. <laughs> that is the most common thing I hear, especially about retail, uh, central bank digital currencies, is do we even need them? 
at all. But um, yeah, it's a it's a, a topic that again I agree probably needs its own podcast. But Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. You were you were an absolute delight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Excellent. Thank you for listening to the Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.